Next week, I'm back here in Dundonald, and I want to talk on, uh, do a little bit of teaching around this very simple theme. Ulster, in fact, Ireland still needs Jesus. But tonight, I want to say to you that more than ever before, Christians, you and I, and I'm assuming that you're Christians, need the gospel to be the beating heart of how we understand God and how we approach him. You never graduate from this. You never get to a more developed theology than this. You're not going to get to something that is better than this. You're never going to reach anything that is more important than the gospel of Jesus Christ. But I wonder if I asked you to tell me what the gospel was in one or two sentences, whether you could do it. Could you articulate it in what I would call an elevator conversation. You're going somewhere, you get into a lift on the ground floor, somebody is standing beside you and they say, I hear you're one of those Christians. And you say, yes, I am. And they say, you, you believe in something called the gospel, don't you? Yes, we do. What is that? And you've got until the lift reaches the third floor to tell them. What would you tell them? going to ask you to find somebody beside you or behind you or next to you or if you're single this could be a good moment (laughs) and tell them what you think the gospel is in a couple of sentences and if there's a particular verse of the bible that you think encapsulates it you're gonna have to talk to each other for that for a few minutes is that all right some of you think we don't talk in church we listen (laughs) you're going to need to talk to each other for a moment or two What is the gospel? And is there a verse or are there verses for you that encapsulate it really clearly? I'll give you two minutes to do that. On you go. I want to read from God's word for you to set the context of what I want to explore with you. You're going to need a Bible. So if you haven't already got one, um, can you share one or can you open your Bible? Hopefully you've brought a notepad or something to write notes down on. I'd love you to be doing that too. Does everybody have access to a Bible? Can you all share one if you haven't brought one with you? Yes? Okay. Read with me um, the first part of the first chapter of the book of Romans. Some people think that Romans is Paul's great 
systematic theology. I'm not sure it is. Um, if you want to know why I'm not sure it is, talk to me afterwards. Um, I think he's addressing a particular issue between Gentile and Jewish Christians in Rome. And that's why this section in the middle, chapter 9, 10, and 11, is so important. But that's not what I want to talk about this evening. Um, listen to these words. I read by the Bible, by the way, from the New Revised Standard Version. I guess many of you will use the NIV or the New King James Version or the ESV. Hear the word of the Lord. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures, the gospel concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for the sake of his name, including yourselves who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all God's beloved in Rome who are called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed throughout the world. For God whom I serve with my spirit by announcing the gospel of his son, third time it's mentioned, is my witness and without ceasing, I remember you always in my prayers asking that by God's will I may somehow at last succeed in coming to you. For I am longing to see you so that I may share with you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. Or rather, so that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented in order that I may reap some harvest amongst you as I have amongst the rest of the Gentiles. I am a debtor both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. Hence my eagerness to proclaim the gospel fourth time to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel fifth time. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who has faith. To the Jew first and also to the Greek for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed through faith for faith, as it is written. The one who is righteous will live by faith. Amen. God always blesses the public reading of his inspired and infallible word. Five times in 17 verses. And you know that the verses weren't there originally. Five times in those first few sentences the Apostle Paul uses this word gospel. He says that he wants to preach it. He says that it's shaped his life. It's changed him. It's transformed him. It's utterly got under his skin. This educated, probably wealthy, um, very, very elite from the right school, speak the right language, has the right connections, Jewish leader was transformed by whatever this message is. It utterly changed his life. He never got to something else. He never got to the place where he said, this doesn't matter anymore. It was always this message. Everywhere he went, it was this that he preached. 
Everything that he did was built around this concept, this idea, this gospel message, this gospel visitation. 500 years ago, on the 31st of October, a German monk called Martin Luther, who had been trying to work out how he could relate to God, discovered something from verse 17 of Romans chapter 1 that not only changed him, it changed the world. It's because of what he discovered that you're sitting in a church like this tonight. It's because of what he discovered that the whole of Europe was transformed with the idea that people didn't have to go to someone else to be told what the truth was, but that they could engage with the Bible. It changed the way people lived. It changed everything. He was probably the most significant person to contribute to history in Europe, not just Christian history, but history in Europe for perhaps a thousand years. And it all happened because of Romans chapter 1, verse 17. The description of what the gospel does or what is contained in it somehow. For in it, this gospel, in it, a righteousness of God is revealed. Listen to the words again. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed through faith, for faith, as it is written, the one who is righteous will live by faith. Here's the story for Martin Luther. Up until that point, he was born in 1483. He went to university when he was 14 or 15. He got his, master, his, his bachelor's degree when he was about 16. He got his master's when he was about 19 or 20. His father was probably quite a wealthy miner, although some people argue that he was a, a poor miner. That's almost certainly not true. So when Martin um, decided that he was going to enter the, uh, the, uh, the priesthood and become a monk, his father was furious. Martin Luther, or Martin Luther as his original name was, did that because he was always finding a way to connect with God. He wanted to discover the meaning of life. He wanted to know how to have peace. He wanted to know how to have forgiveness. So he traveled uh, to Rome on foot, 600 mile journey. And when he got there, he went up some of the steps that were outside one of the larger churches at the time on his knees, confessing to God every single thing that he'd ever done wrong because he thought if I can get rid of all of this guilt, all of this weight, all of this stuff that's in my head, then I'll have peace with God and I'll be at peace with myself. And he got to the top of the steps and with blood pouring from his knees, he realized that he still didn't have peace. He confessed every thing that he could think of, every sin that he'd ever committed, every wrongdoing. He left dejected and on his way back to um, uh, where he was living at the time, a place called Erfurt, he uh, was caught in a storm. And he said to God, I want to give you the rest of my life if you save me from this storm. And he was saved from the storm, at least that's how the story goes. But he still couldn't find peace, became a monk, still couldn't find peace, was translating the scripture, still couldn't find peace. Eventually, he read Romans chapter 1 verse 17. And he realized that he'd been searching in all the wrong places for peace with God, for the meaning of life, for purpose and for forgiveness and for the fresh start. The Reformation was birthed on the 31st of October 1517. Uh, and the world has never been the same since. And it's built on the idea of gospel. John Calvin said this, 
in a book that he wrote called Golden Booklet of the True Christian Life. Listen to these words. The gospel is not a doctrine of the tongue, but of life. It cannot be grasped by reason and memory only. It is only fully understood when it possesses the whole soul and penetrates to the inner recesses of the heart. When everything around us is changing, when the world is changing, when our lives are changing, we need something that will anchor us and hold us firm. Christianity has that anchor. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ as given by God to us in the Bible. It is not dependent on the most recent fashions. It isn't dependent on social theory. It isn't dependent on social trend. This message of gospel, this good news, holds us firm in whatever storms we face. As individual followers of Jesus Christ and as part of his body, the church on earth. So you know it, right? Christians believe in the gospel, don't they? After all, the first four books of the New Testament all seem to be described by the use of this word. The gospel according to Matthew, the gospel according to Mark, the gospel according to Luke, and the gospel according to John. Note not four gospels, just one, told through four different sets of eyes. In many Anglican churches, or Church of Ireland churches, when the gospel is read, people will stand up and the reader will say, hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to, and then they'll quote the book. And the congregation will respond with these words, glory to you, O Lord. And then at the end of the gospel reading, the reader will say, this is the gospel of the Lord. And the congregation responds with praise to you, O Christ. As Christians, we talk about the living gospel. We talk about living the gospel, sharing the gospel, demonstrating the gospel, responding to the gospel. In the context that I became a Christian, we spoke of having a gospel service every week. Yet many of us are confused about what the gospel actually is. I wonder what we would do if we were confronted with someone who needed to know this good news. It's more, even more interesting that some of us are confused about what it might mean when you consider that churches like this one sit in the tradition of something called the evangelical church. And the word evangelical has at its root gospel. So the evangelists have at their root good news. So here we begin to get a kind of glimpse of what this might mean. Evangelical. Evangelism, you're an evangelist. Evangelism, evangelist, evangelistic, all have the same roots, good news. So why so often do we end up sounding like bad news people? Before I get to what the gospel is defined as in the Bible, if you were to walk down the street in Newton Ards, or in Dundonald, or in Belfast, or in Bangor, and were to ask 10 non-churchgoers, what do Christians stand for? Many of them would struggle. If you said, what do Christians stand against? They'd be able to tell you much more quickly. 
There's something gone wrong if we only end up known as the people that stand against things. We are people who stand for something, which means that we will have a position that might be different to society, but it's not because society is wrong and we're just always arguing with it. It's because we believe in something bigger. Because we believe in something better, we believe in something stronger. The word eangelion, which sounds like a type of spaghetti, is the Greek word for gospel. And at its heart, it means good news. The problem with English is we don't have enough words. We use the word good in a whole range of different ways. That was a really good pizza. That was a really good film. Murder on the Orient Express, really good film. Not so sure. We use the word good in lots of different ways. Have a good night. The problem is that in Greek, the good bit of the good news is not just good, it is incredibly good. It is transformatively good. It's world-changingly good. So when we get to talk about the gospel as the good news, we almost need to think of another word. We almost need to talk about the incredible, superfluous, and unbelievable, inexplicable, galaxy-transforming, universe-altering, world-shattering, life-shaping, hope-giving news that we have for you. Now, if you were to do that, people would think there was something wrong with you. But the reality is that that's what the word evangelion means. It's that kind of news. To understand it, and I don't want you to feel as if I'm teaching my granny to suck eggs, but to understand it, you've got to understand the way the word was used originally. The evangelist who announced the good news, it's a technical term. It's a word that was used for somebody that would come into a town to announce the victory of an army. They would walk into this town square and they would, or ride into the town square and they would announce something. They weren't inviting somebody to agree with it. They weren't saying, if you believe it, then it's true. They were saying, here is an announcement. Believe it or not, but the announcement is true. And they'd say, this king has won in this battle and he has overcome this enemy and this is the news. Whatever we get to when we're defining the gospel in the New Testament, the interesting thing is, when you read the book of Acts, there are eight key sermons in the book of Acts that are gospel sermons. Not once is the gospel announced like this. Jesus is Lord, if you will believe it. Not once. Not once is the gospel conditional. Not once is the good news denounced and it becomes true when somebody responds to it. Not once. Every single time this announcement is made in the New Testament, it is a statement of fact, which leads to a confrontation with those that are listening, either a good one or a bad one whether it's James or Paul or Peter or Apollos or Timothy or Titus in the New Testament, here is how they go about announcing whatever this good news is. They declare it and then they say to people, then people have to respond. If they say no, it doesn't change the news. If they say yes, it doesn't change the news. The only thing it changes is the way the news impacts them. Too many gospel services, too many gospel preachers make coming to God some kind of bargaining chip. And they turn the gospel into something else. Come to God and he'll give you everything you want. That's not the gospel. 
Come to God and you'll never be sick again. That's not the gospel. Come to God and you'll never struggle. That's not the gospel. Come to God and you'll be rich. That's not the gospel. Come to God and you'll never have a problem ever again. That's not the gospel. None of those are the gospel. So what is it? What is this good news? And what does it mean for us to be good news people? There are an awful lot of different answers to that question. Some here tonight might say the gospel is that we should repent because the kingdom of God is at hand. Open your Bibles to Mark chapter 1, verses 14 to 15 for a moment. I'll give you a chance to find it because I really like people reading the Bible with me so you don't think I'm making it up. We're going to look at two or three, well, more than two or three, a number of different verses now. You all got it? Mark 1, 14. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee proclaiming the good news of God and saying the time has is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. Is the good news the repentance there? I don't think so. Repentance is a response to the announcement of the gospel. It's, it's how human beings respond to this invitation. Some modern Bible teachers, including people like Tom Wright and um, Scott McKnight and Brian McLaren and a whole series of others, are really popular at the minute in the church in the UK and in Europe. And they say, here's the gospel. It can be summed up in three simple words. Jesus is Lord. That's the good news because it's the announcement that Jesus is Lord. That's the good news. They take their basis for that from Romans chapter 10, verse 9, amongst other verses. Look at that with me for a minute. I'm not hearing pages move. If you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Is that the gospel? Or what about Philippians chapter 2, verse 11? Flick forward in your Bibles to that. In this section that Paul is talking about the, the great victory of Jesus Christ probably an early church hymn. He says in verse 11 of Philippians chapter two, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I reckon that most of you when asked what verse would you quote for the gospel said John chapter three, verse 16. It's the gospel that Jesus died for our sins and that as we believe in him, we are rescued. Listen to John 3, 16 to 18. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent his son into the world not to condemn the world but that the world through him might be saved. Those who believe in him are not condemned but those who do not believe are condemned already because they have not believed in the name of the only son of God. Is that the gospel? Or what about a kind of summary of the life of Jesus. Is that the gospel? 
But you look at his whole life, and his whole life is the good news. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. Paul, writing to a young pastor in a city called Ephesus, modern-day Turkey. Timothy's setting out, and he doesn't want to get things wrong. And Paul says this to him, reminding him of what he believes. Without any doubt, the mystery of our religion is great. He was revealed in flesh, vindicated in spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed amongst Gentiles, believed in throughout the world and taken up in glory. Amen. Well, I'll get excited about these verses even if you don't. I think all of those verses indicate the beating heart of the gospel somehow or other that resonates through all that Jesus says and all that he does. That he came to proclaim the kingdom of God and call people into it. That he's being established as Lord over all. That to enter his kingdom, you must follow his instructions and submit to his will and purposes and turn from your own way. That, he's a, that his is a central message of hope and love and forgiveness, which is made possible by his own sacrifice and driven by the Father's love for us. That Jesus in himself was God in flesh and bone and was affirmed and approved by the Holy Spirit, was seen by all the powers of all the ages as the true king and has been preached to the Gentiles and to the Jews. That all who believe in him are transformed by his grace and power and that Jesus now stands physically and spiritually alive in heaven. They're all true. They're all different expressions of the gospel. They all matter. And yet... There is one passage above all other passages in the New Testament that answers the question, what is the gospel? And it combines all of these things in a way that is easy to remember. And if we will allow it to sink into our hearts and souls, will transform us forever. It's not just a message for those that are not yet Christians. It's a message for you and for me. It's what keeps us going. It's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And I want to read it with you. So could you please find it in your Bibles? It incorporates all of the things that I've said, but it goes further because it explains why Jesus came. It roots his ministry in the expectation of the Jewish people and the promises of God. And it explains what his death has accomplished and it ties together his death and his resurrection. Have you all got it? 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1. Now, I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the good news that I proclaim to you, which you in turn received, in which also you stand, through which also you are being saved, if you hold firmly to the message that I proclaim to you, unless you've come to believe in vain. For I handed on to you as of first importance what I in turn had received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the 12. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he also appeared to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unfit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me has not been in vain. On the contrary, I work harder than any of them, 
though it was not I, but the grace of God that was in me. Whether then it was I or they, so we proclaim and so you have come to believe. There's the gospel. You don't look excited by it. Listen to some of these phrases. I pass on to you what was passed on to me. Paul only uses that phrase twice. Here and in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Why don't you find it for a minute? There's only two examples of this phrase in the whole of the New Testament. They're almost identical, but they're not exactly the same. Look at verse 23 of 1 Corinthians 11. For I received from the Lord what I also handed on to you. Now look at 1 Corinthians 15 again. For I hand, verse 3, for I handed on to you as of first importance what I in turn had received. Do you see how similar they are? For I received from the Lord what I also handed on to you. For I handed on to you as of first importance what I had in turn received. There's only one word difference. And the word that is different is in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul uses the Greek word protos, of first importance. It's where we get the word prototype from. So whatever he is about to say is so important that he uses these two phrases together. The first is, this isn't mine. It was given to me. I received from the Lord what I'm now handing on to you. So whatever the message is that he's about to tell the Corinthians, they need to listen to it because it is given to Paul that he might give it to somebody else. Do you understand that? He doesn't make it up. It's not his message at this stage. It's been given to him. But then he uses this word of first importance. In other words, it is so foundational. If you don't get this, you don't get anything. As a Christian, if you don't get this, your whole Christian life will be blighted. I meet Christians every single day whose lives are blighted by guilt, fear, anxiety, insecurity, anger, unforgiveness, trying to prove that God was right in choosing them, trying to earn his love. And it's fundamentally because they haven't understood what I'm about to say to you. If you are one of those Christians, here's what your life looks like. You never feel good enough. Deep down inside, you're always guilty. You always feel as if you're a failure. You always feel as if you're not going to live up to the expectations that God has for you. That really, somebody's going to discover one day that you're a fraud. And your life is wrought with questions and anxieties and uncertainties about whether or not you're in God's family. When you allow the gospel that Paul shares here to inveigle its way into your soul, everything changes. This is what he preached. This is what 1 Corinthians is probably the earliest letter of the whole of the New Testament, probably written around 49 or 50, maybe even 47 AD, probably written before the gospels were collected. And this message is so important that Paul says this is of first importance. It has power to transform a life. One person writing about this said this, the word we study has to be the word we pray. My personal experience of the relentless tenderness of God 
came not from exegetes, theologians, and spiritual writers, but from sitting still in the presence of the living word and beseeching him to help me understand with my head and heart his written word. Sheer scholarship alone cannot reveal to us the gospel of grace. We must never allow the authority of books, institutions, or leaders to replace the authority of knowing Jesus Christ personally and directly. When the religious views of others interpose between us and the primary experience of Jesus as the Christ, we become unconvicted and unpersuasive travel agents handing out brochures to places we've never visited. Did you catch that? I'll say it again because some of you are looking at me confused. If the gospel hasn't dug into your heart, then you're an unconvinced travel agent selling holiday destinations to a place you've never been. If it hasn't gripped us, how on earth will it ever grip anybody else? If it hasn't ignited our imaginations and caused us to want to stand on the top of the steeple of St. Anne's and shout, yes! How is it ever going to capture anybody else's imagination? And I wonder if because many of us have been Christians 30 or 40 or 50 years, we've ended up so used to this that it doesn't grip us that way. On the night that I was inducted as the pastor of Gold Hill Baptist Church, I said, could you please sing this song? Here's one of the lines in it. Let me never lose the wonder, the wonder of the cross. Let me see it like the first time standing as a sinner lost, undone by mercy and left speechless at the cost. Let me never lose the wonder, the wonder of the cross. You are not even remotely aware, nor am I, of how much God loves you and what he has done. If we could let that grip our hearts, if a church lets that grip its heart, everything is changed. The power of the gospel changes lives. Look at verses one and two of 1 Corinthians 15. Paul reminds them that this vital message has the power to transform their lives. It can change them forever. Now I remind you, brothers and sisters, of the good news that I proclaim to you, which you in turn received, in which also you stand, through which also you are being saved. This word has power. This message has power. In the second verse, he makes it abundantly clear that it is as they stand in this message and let its power work out in their lives that they will continue to experience the power and the hope of their salvation. His language makes it clear that this good news is transformative for them. It's central to their understanding of God and without it, they have no hope. And then in verses three to five, he puts this centrality at the very heart of it. Nowhere else in his writing apart from 1 Corinthians 11 does he use that language. This is what they believed from the very beginning. It was of first importance. And this is what they need to hold on to as they continue to believe. It is of such foundational importance that without it, they'll never understand God. I hand it on to you as of first importance. And what is its content? So what is it? Well, let's go through it line by line for a second. 
that Jesus Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and on the third day he rose again according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve and then to 500 people at the same time and then to Paul. What are the constituent parts of that? Number one, not just that Jesus Christ died, but that Jesus Christ died, what's the next phrase? For our sins. That's unpopular now. I could take you to any number of churches in Belfast that would not want to use that word. That would think that it's old-fashioned, that it should be changed, transformed, redefined. Paul says that the heart of this good news is Jesus Christ died for your sins. He died for your wrongdoing. He died for the stuff that you can't fix. He died for the mess that you make. He died for the mistakes that you make. He died for the selfishness and the pride and the anger and the resentment and the religiosity, everything that separates us from God. He died for that. He didn't die just because it was a good idea. He died for our sins. I'll come back to according to the scriptures in a moment. That he died and was buried. This isn't some kind of mystical death. It's not some kind of figurative death. It's not some kind of imaginative death. 60 or 70 years ago, Christians gave away some of this stuff and we need to claim it back again. You hear what Christians often say, well, if it's true for you, you know, I believe it. So therefore, you know, if you believe it, that's fine. If you don't, it's up to you. That's the wrong thing for us to say. Jesus Christ was born around 4 BC. He lived in a place called, now called Israel a Roman-occupied area called Israel or Palestine in those days. He walked the streets of Galilee. He had flesh and bone like you and me. He probably fell and banged his knee. He had a mother that brought him up. He had to learn how to write. He had to learn how to speak. He had to learn how to make tables and chairs with his stepfather who was a carpenter. He wasn't just a story. This is an actual grounded in earth, grounded in time and history occurrence. He died and he was buried. There is still a tomb where his body was laid. It's not just a a myth. It's not just a, a kind of conviction. It's not just a belief. He actually died. He actually was buried. He actually stopped breathing. He was actually no longer alive. Jesus Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and he was buried. And on the third day, he rose again. Oh, for goodness sake, how can that not be exciting? Some of you looked rather worried at me when I said to you that John 3.16 doesn't encapsulate the whole gospel. Where's the resurrection in John 3.16? God loved the word so much that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Where's the resurrection? What if Jesus had not been risen from the dead? The death of Jesus on the cross and the resurrection of Jesus three days later go hand in hand. Together they present this message. Here's why that matters, folks. And I know you know this, but you need to be reminded of it. In his death on the cross, he defeats sin. By being buried, he defeats death. By rising again, he gives us hope. Those three things together are what make the difference. Yeah. 
And the only reason that they make a difference is because he lived a perfect life. Many people were crucified. At least two others on the day that he died, died. There has to be something that makes him qualified in a particularly special way. So that his death satisfies something, changes something. There are some people who say to you that when Jesus died, he defeated the devil. I think that's true. There are others that will say he was a moral example. I think that's true, but they're not enough. When Jesus died, he bore the wrath of a God who could have punished you, but punished him instead. He poured out everything that you and I deserve. Mark chapter 10, verse 47, Jesus Christ gave his life as a ransom for many. Who was the ransom paid to? The devil? That's inconceivable. That could not be true. Who was the ransom paid to? Almighty God himself. He paid the penalty so you could be forgiven. That's good news. Not just once, not just twice, not just for the stuff that you've done up to that point. Forgiven for everything. When he died, he went to the very place that people are afraid of most. Here's what Hebrews chapter two, verse 14 says. Powerful, powerful verse. He defeated our greatest enemy, death, high, through dying. By dying, he took away the greatest fear that human beings have. But what if he'd stayed dead? How could that have been victorious? but he didn't stay dead. Three days later, he rose again, proving that he had defeated death. He satisfies the needs of a holy God on the cross. He conquers the fear of death and dying, and he gives us hope in being resurrected. Here's the challenge. Listen to the words of the Apostle Paul later on in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If Christ did not rise from the dead then we are of all people most miserable. And then here's what Paul says. Are you listening? But Christ is risen. Those things together sit at the heart of the Christian faith. What about that little phrase, according to the scriptures? Repeated twice in 1 Corinthians 15. Why does that matter? I think it matters because we're not free to change this story. You're not free to make Jesus into something that he wasn't. You don't get the chance to dilute him. You don't get the chance to make his death, his death, his burial, and his resurrection into a metaphor. You don't get the chance to weaken weaken it of its power. You can't make it into something that means that everybody everywhere will be saved. Because that's not what the Bible teaches. You can't turn it into a, 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 a nice kind of um, Aesop fable. We have to preach the Jesus that we find in the New Testament. And we have to preach the cross that we find in the New Testament. And we have to preach the message that we find in the New Testament. You're not free to make church more attractive by dropping the hard bits. And I recognize that church is kind of empty when somebody says something like this. Like it or not, God needs to save us because we're sinners. 
The cross can't be diluted into something else. The gospel can't be transformed into something else. And for a second, let me just say this to you. The gospel is not go and be a nice person. But Donald doesn't need more nice people. Castle Ray doesn't need more nice people. The only thing it needs is Christians that are living out the power of the gospel in everyday life. You can help people with a school. You can help them with education. You can help them with food. You can help them with something to drink. You can help them with getting them into a job. You can help them with advice and counseling. We can do all of that and we should. But at the end of the day, that isn't enough. Because people will still end up going to a lost eternity unless they meet the God that can forgive them of their sin and set them free forever. The church is not a social club and we're not government with a small g and we're not just a place that people come to have coffee and meet friends. We are a community of people that preach the cross and preach the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus according to the scriptures. Some of my closest friends have walked away from this. They've said, well, Jesus just accepts us where we are. There's no need to change. There's no need to be transformed. There's no need to be challenged. None of that is true. Our problem isn't that we believe the gospel too much. Our problem is that we don't believe it enough. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, if your preaching of the gospel of God's free grace in Jesus Christ does not provoke the charge from some of being a liberal or an antinomian against the law, then you're not preaching the gospel of the free grace of God in Jesus Christ at all. Here's the problem. The longer you're in church, the more legalistic you can become. And you create more and more hoops for people to jump through. What hoops did you have to jump through to be converted? One, you had to turn to Christ. One, you didn't have to do everything else. You just had to turn to him. You had to repent and turn to him and he accepted you. Everything else follows from that, doesn't it? So be careful that you don't set up a whole list of rules and expectations for other people. Here's one of the first verses I ever learned after I became a Christian. You'll be pleased to know that I am a Christian, by the way. (laughs) While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I love him because he loved me first. The power of that, if we will allow it to shape us, is amazing. How far has this gospel penetrated your heart? How far down has it gone? Far enough to forgive you the night that you became a believer? But has it gone down far enough to forgive you for the mistakes that you've made in the last six months? for the mess that you've made today, for the rubbish that you're involved in, that you need set free from, this gospel works for that too. It has the power to set us free, to change your identity so that you're no longer rejected, you're loved, you're no longer away from God, you're close to him, you're no longer in a far off land, you're in his arms and he loves you. The American pastor A.W. Tozer said this, Jesus Christ came not to condemn you, but to save you. Knowing your name, knowing all about you, knowing your weight right now, 
knowing your age, knowing what you do, knowing where you live, knowing what you ate for supper and what you will eat for breakfast, where you will sleep tonight, how much your clothing cost, who your parents are. He knows you individually as though there were not another person in the entire world. He died for you as certainly as if you had been the only last one. He knows the worst about you and is the one who loves you the most. If you're out of the fold and away from God, put your name in the words of John 3.16 and say, Lord, it is I. I'm the cause and the reason why you came to earth and died. That kind of positive personal faith and a positive personal redeemer is what saves you. If you will just rush in there, you do not have to know all the theology and all the right words. You can say, I am the one who came to die for. Write it down in your heart and say, Jesus, this is me. You and me, as though there were no others. Have that kind of personalized belief in a personal Lord and Savior. Next week, I'm going to talk to you about the fact that this island still needs Jesus. And he will be seen through individual Christians and churches that have experienced that kind of gospel. And hold on to it every single day of our lives. What will attract people to a church like Dundonald? Good worship services, great music, an extra couple of lights, maybe a smoke machine here and a bubble machine there, singing a trendy song or repeating a chorus 455 times. Please don't do that. Is that what attracts him? Everybody wearing tight black skinny jeans, apart from the pastor, <laughs> who if he wore tight black skinny jeans would be laughed out of town anyway. Is he, is it, does the church have to be this political activist, this big voice, this popular place, this trendy place where they serve all the right coffee and all the right mugs and people sit in all the right kind of seats and the service lasts exactly the right length of time? Is that what will change this province? Absolutely not. Posh buildings, no. Brilliant programs, no. Interminable preaching that bores people to tears, never in a month of Sundays. Here's what will change Northern Ireland. Here's what could change Castle Ray. A group of people captured by the power of the gospel. With it pulsating at their very heart so that everything they are and everything they do reeks of grace. A community where people can come and find life and hope and they don't get met with a religious stare. They instead they get met by somebody that says, I have been where you have been. I know what it feels like. The only difference between you and me is I have grasped the feet of the cross. You haven't done it yet. Meet this Jesus and he will transform you in the same way that he is transforming me. A church like that, it doesn't matter what the building's like. People will sit on orange boxes to meet God. They'll come from anywhere and everywhere to be part of a community of people who really believe this and who let it shape their choices and their money and their family and their living. And here's the exciting thing, if that's not exciting enough. I think you could be that church. I think this little community with its beautiful purple carpet and green seats and fantastic building. This community of people that have kept going. You didn't build this to be a beautiful building. You built it to be a barn to house people who could meet Jesus Christ. 
The people that led worship tonight, I don't know them, but I know them well enough to know this. They're not interested in performing. They're interested in worshiping. The people that I've met and spoken to over the last couple of months as I've journeyed with you, the men and women that are involved in the leadership of this church and in serving, they love Jesus. And they want the time to know that Jesus is still alive, that he still transforms lives. There are so many things that you're getting right. There are so many principles and building blocks that are in the right place. Are you perfect? Of course you're not. Take a look at the person beside you and say, you are proof this church isn't perfect. (laughs) Take a look at me. I'm a broken man. I have difficulty praying sometimes. I lose concentration when I'm reading the Bible. Sometimes I believe this gospel is too good to be true. I wonder why God would ever love me enough to save me. I get up some mornings and think, can I make a difference today? I read a passage of the Bible and think I've been reading this for 31 years and I'm no further forward. I struggle with God. I struggle with big questions, but underneath everything, with every fiber that is in me, I believe this. Jesus Christ died to save sinners and he died to save me and that changes everything. So next week, when we come to talk about this province still needing Jesus Christ, Let it burn in your heart for seven days that the best people to tell them are people that have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. Go back for a minute to your moment when you met Jesus. Close your eyes. Not for me. Think about it. Think about the scrapes that he's got you out of. Think about how much he's forgiven you. Think about the times he's carried you. If I wrote your sins on the screen behind me, how many of you would run in shame? Not just from before you were converted, but since you've been converted. And then think about this. He loves you enough to have paid the price for it all. You're forgiven. Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. That problem in your marriage, that problem at work, that problem of addiction, that secret sin that nobody knows about, that resentment, that anger, that hatred, that jealousy. God can deal with it all because he's dealt with it at the cross. May we never lose the wonder of the cross, Lord. May we never, ever get bored with this, that you have forgiven us, that you have accepted us, and that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ. May it be the heart of Dundonald Elam every moment of every day for the rest of its existence. Amen.